Greetings here on Deep Background for October 5th, 2016, a Wednesday. We're just about a month away, aren't we, fellas? About St- a month. St- Steve Kraske with KCUR is up to date and the Kansas City Star and Scott Cannon, Hi, my David. colleague at the Star, great to be with you. Hey, David. Okay, so we have last, night, uh, last night's vice presidential debate to chew over a little bit, guys. <laughs> do we and, have uh, to? Yeah, well, we do, <laughs> uh, because there's nothing else to talk about. Um, I'm interested in the idea, well, we'll come back to the debate in a minute, but I'm interested in the idea uh, about a month out of the gaffe. You know, I, our coverage is so dominated now by gaffes, Bill Clinton's gaffe on Obamacare, and was there a gaffe in the debate, and did Hillary Clinton commit a gaffe when she talked about the basket of deplorables? <laughs> Do we, did the, does that make any difference for the voter? Are, are we obsessed with something that is not a primary concern of voters? After all, but you know, Trump has been a gaffe fast since his campaign began. He's got 40% but can't get to 50 Well, what's interesting to me about gas, David, is is the degree to which they affect different candidates differently, just as you just alluded to. I mean, poor Gary Johnson, the libertarian right, candidate for gaff. president, one gaffe maybe as a third-party candidate. Maybe two. Yeah, two. That's that's fair. You know, two, two gaffes, and the man has, has utterly sunk his campaign. And the first gaffe occurred at a time when he was just beginning to you know, show a little legs and maybe he would get to 15 percent and be in the be in the debates, you know, but Donald Trump commits some, you know, seemingly daily and doesn't seem to affect his campaign. Hillary talks about the basket of deplorables. It's a big deal. And um, yeah, I think they matter. I, I think it mattered back in you want to want to go back in history to 76 when uh, Gerald Ford got the Poland thing all screwed up in well, terms right, of right and dole on Democrats you know, or that kind of thing. I think I think it, that, it, it it can matter sometimes. Yeah, Michael Kinsley famously defined gaffes as when a politician actually accidentally tells the truth, right. <laughs> w- yes. which uh, you know it, it has more than a grain of truth in, in it, and yet. The reason I'm interested in this is that there was so much attention focused last night on some of the things that each of the candidates said that may have been a mistake or whatever, and yet Donald Trump, in essence, gets a pass because he does that kind of thing all the time. That seems weird to me. Scott, yeah, you know, it, when you first raised the question, I was going to say that we're almost in a post-GAF world, but I think Steve makes an argument that the basket of deplorables sort of undercuts that. I think we're I think gaffes seem to matter less than they might have one, at least one cycle ago. Um, and part of that's due to Donald Trump. In some ways, that's healthy that that a, a candidate can say something that's not absolutely perfect and that shouldn't sink their campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sinks whatever hope Gary Johnson had of making it to 15%, which meant making it to the debate, because that was probably one of the first things that a lot of people knew about him was right. that he didn't know where – what Aleppo was, or at least had a brain cramp when right. Aleppo came up, and then later on he had trouble naming a, a world leader he admired. Right. And, um, I mean, Rick Perry. Interestingly, too, it, you should know that you know, William Weld, his uh, vice presidential candidate, is, you know, there were rumors for a while that he was going to drop out, and now he's saying, I'm only going to focus on why Trump isn't electable. And he has said that Cl- Clinton is the most qualified to be president. So he's sort of I, that, that sinks a little bit that idea that, okay, Bernie voters, you're looking for somewhere else to go, that the that Gary Johnson is your way. Those are signals from within the campaign that 
now you know, there's something else at stake here. Yeah, but why would Gary Johnson be disqualified by one Because that's gaffe? all we knew about him. Right. Most people knew about him. Yeah, it, but it may also be because it, it feeds in – if you're not inclined to support him to begin with, it gives you an excuse not to. And I think that's mm. what where gaffes tend to matter. Right. I was talking to a libertarian yesterday who was saying, well, people taking it out of – media taking it out of context. Guy said one thing, doesn't seem fair, and all that's – basically true but strategically speaking if the one thing i know about the guys he he didn't know what aleppo was in one interview but some gaffes you you just you feel for the for the candidate i mean you mentioned rick perry just a few seconds ago rick perry can't remember the third item in a series of three the third third department he wanted the third department how many of us have been in similar positions you're giving a talk before a group and you can't remember the third thing i mean and that just sort of fed into a pre-existing belief suspicion about rick perry that he wasn't all that smart and then off he went to the races once he made that mistake and it but it, it really hurt him it really hurt. All right, it really and like with career. Hillary, it, it, to your point, it, it feeds into this notion that she's condescending to the electorate, that she thinks she's better and entitled to this stuff. So for her putting down people as deplorable feeds into what some people suspect about her already, right? Mm-hmm. right. But yeah. the other thing about gaffes, I think, on our side of the fence is it leads us sometimes to leap to conclusions based on what a, a, a candidate or a surrogate says – that does take the statement out of context and forecloses the opportunity of a broader discussion. I'm thinking particularly of Bill Clinton's gaffe on Obamacare, mm-hmm. where he, in essence, comes out and says things that at least deserve some discussion. Why is Obamacare not doing better? What, what about the exchanges? How can we fix it? Instead, everybody narrows it to the gaffe, you know, this crazy system quote, and it, and it closes off any chance of a real discussion about that. And I don't know, it just seems like this whole campaign at the presidential level particularly has been about closing off rational discussions because we're so focused well, on the gaffes. It, not that we want to go here too deeply, but you have to wonder about the culpability of the news media in, in terms of our penchant for seizing on right. these moments I think that's and blowing them up at a time when the American people seem to be saying quite clearly on both sides of the aisle that, as you say, we want candid conversation from our candidates. If we want that, we have to be willing to live with the occasional gaffe and not go bonker nuts over right. it when it but happens. You know, Trump got kind of a, a raw deal. He, he made this statement about PTSD and that Right. It was interpreted Classic as example. some people can't handle it and that they're weak somehow. It, you look at what he said. That, that wasn't his intent at all. His syntax is, as Dave, you point out, is always kind of sloppy, but he wasn't really saying that. Right. On the other hand, that thing came and went pretty quickly. So maybe that's some evidence that we're a little bit grown up at times and we move on from the one right. thing to the Although to it's hard to escape the feeling that it, we moved on from the PTSD thing with Trump because Trump gaffed so much that it just it wasn't on the high you know high up on the list but but I think just to close out this discussion because I do want to move on to the debate I think the most pernicious impact of the 24-7 internet media culture is a reliance on gaffes. There's got to be something new to feed the beast, so we scour what they all say, and can there's a, is there a line we can pick up and then blow it up big, you know, huge mistake, Bill Clinton, huge mistake, uh, you know, Tim Kaine or whatever. In, you know, 20 years ago, the, there were gaffes. 
you know, people made mistakes, famously George H.W. Bush, others made mistakes, but at least we had some chance to absorb them and see if there was some broader context. In the current environment, it's a gaff a day, and but, but, I think you know, to the exclusion of almost every other discussion. Voters have responsibility here, too. Voters, if you talk to them, will say, by and large, they want to hear a conversation on the issues. The truth is, no, they don't. The issues bore them. They want something else to feed their interest in this very what they mostly want news is cycle. A gotcha on the other guy. Exactly. They, want, they, they, want, they don't. Hillary people don't want to hear what's so great about Hillary. They want to hear what the stupid thing that Trump yep. said today, and yep. vice versa. Right. I agree. And the reason I brought this up is that human at the, nature. At the end of last night's debate, the very end, uh, Tim Kaine and Mike Pence had a discussion about abortion that I thought was fascinating, brilliant. Well argued on both sides. Not it felt sincere. Obviously for sincere, deep. You know, there's no compromising on abortion, and there's no neither side walked away or tried to waffle. And I just think this campaign has been bereft of any of that. I mean, can you point to a single moment where you felt, gosh, they're really getting into an issue of substance in a way that makes some sense on a very important subject? And, and that voters could use that exchange uh, to make a decision. And the answer is no. It just doesn't happen. And that's really a problem in my view. Well, I, I think that, that that's right. I think you're absolutely right. But again, the quick draw response is to blame the candidates for going that way. And I'm just suggesting that the news media and the voters themselves bear some responsibility here because we say we want it, but everyone knows we really don't. And that's a problem, too, in this culture we're living in where we want these campaigns to put on a little show for us and entertain us that's what the trump one lesson from the trump ascendancy has brought to us is this idea of presidential campaign as, as shtick and that's a that's something we've all got to think about a little bit right here. right and we haven't really figured out okay well let's talk about the debate then what were your impressions of our two candidates Apart from that last moment, uh, it was a very different debate, I thought, up until that last last discussion. Yeah, I'll just be blunt. I, I thought Mike Pence came out on top. I thought he looked a little bit more dignified for, for all the superficial reasons that we're, we're talking about here. Uh, if you base it on the first half hour of this vice presidential debate, which I think you have to, Americans all over the country were turning it off after a while because it became... It was a vice presidential debate. But, you know, Tim Kaine interrupting. He was clearly uncomfortable coming out. He uncomfortable in the role of being the attack dog. That's what he apparently went into this debate assigned to be. And he's not comfortable in that role, interrupting Mike Pence repeatedly, like Trump did in the first debate against Clinton. People were, you know, soundly, you know, criticized Trump for doing that. I think he got to put uh, Tim Kaine in the same boat. You know, having said that, does this debate change minds? Does it change votes? I think very, very few. I would predict that come Saturday night when Saturday Night Live spoofs this thing, <laughs> we all will have forgotten this debate uh, even days earlier. Did you see it that way, Scott? Yeah, I, um, you know, you tweeted out during the debate that uh, Pence won and Trump lost, and, and the rest of the world seemed to seize on that theme. So congratulations, Dave, <laughs> on the world-changing tweet. <laughs> I thought that was true. I, I, I thought Kane was really pretty awful. He came out, you know, the, the first question is, you know, you might end up being president. What makes you qualified? 
And Kane immediately yeah. slips into this can thing about Hillary and yeah. I, and blah, right. blah, blah. Right, exactly. And then, and, and then, and then he went on to interrupt, and, and, and both of them, that was just such a tit-for-tat. There was no discussion. Right. Um, you know, my wife was, was watching the debate in another room, and she said she watched a few for minutes of it and, and, and turned it off because it's, it's, it's what's wrong with politics today. It, it, these are two guys essentially lying to us because they're not answering the question, mm-hmm. even if they're not being canned in any real way. Um, I, I really thought Cain flubbed. He felt, he reminded me of Rubio. Remember when Rubio got that horrible debate where he kept saying the same thing? Right. Yeah. Cain did the same over. thing yeah. about fat slobs yes, and, yeah. uh, yes. Came back and, to it a and couple Mexicans, of times. rapists and all that saying over and over again and you know and I also thought there were time and again where he really missed opportunities that that um, Pence laid open for there, there was a you know Pence was talking about you know when I was governor jobs and, and went this direction and when you were governor jobs went the bad way and right. King could easily have jumped in and said well I started out during the Bush administration you started out during the Obama administration that was the real difference right. those sorts of things he didn't jump on mm-hmm. um, and, and Pence was you know much more polished but it, it, I thought it, Kane was effective when he's, he's, he pointed out, you know, you've been unable to defend Trump on these six things I pointed out. And Pence out. couldn't defend he Trump couldn't. on any number or was, of Or wasn't willing to. Which yeah. I think may be right. one of the great themes from the debate, because I do think over time, which is why I suggested that Trump lost, because he, he has said so many things that are indefensible, and I thought, uh, Mike Pence did a good job by not trying to defend them. You can't. You just walk down a rabbit hole if you try to defend what he said about John McCain. It's you can't. So walk away from it. But I, I, I was interested, Steve, that you mentioned that that Tim Kaine's interruption problem resembled Donald Trump's, which I think is true in terms of style. But in some ways, Kaine was the anti-Trump. In this sense, Trump was underprepared. I thought Kane was far too overprepared. Yeah, that's I mean, fair. he's just clearly in a room somewhere, and they're going, and make sure you say this, and make yes. sure you say that. He was never actually asked about Trump's tax returns, but he talked about it about eight different times, which is obviously someone in rehearsal saying, be sure and use every opportunity you have to get the tax return thing in. Well, and that's it, equally dangerous as being underprepared could in a way. It, in this vice presidential debate that's lightly watched, particularly throughout, maybe that's it's okay, maybe I can beat Kane going and say, I, I can lose as long as the other guy loses. To, the other guy's presidential candidate loses. Because right, right. we're not... It's, it's, it's Steve says we're going to forget about this, but at least it didn't change the narrative to no. something that Trump folks want to talk about rather than right. Clinton but I people. think it also speaks to to why we think Hillary Clinton is so skillful in debates, which, by the way, there's another one Sunday, because she innately understands policy without being over-rehearsed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, just an astonishingly important skill in these in these encounters. I've told this story before, but in 1980, one of the great lessons I ever learned in journalism was in 1980, Ted Kennedy came to Wichita. He was in the Kansas primary. And they said, hey, you can have 10 minutes with Ted Kennedy at the time. You know, my God, Ted Kennedy. And so I went into the interview with a list of questions on my notebook and never paid any attention to what he was saying. And he just ate me alive because I wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd been a reporter for a couple years, and I realize now the skill is to listen. And I didn't get the sense last night that Tim Kaine was listening to anything. Mm-hmm. His mind was just flip, 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 flip through the note right. cards that he'd been given. Yeah. The same could have been said of the moderator, by the way. Right. You I know, didn't think she did a very good job, and it's a time. tough deal. Oh, and that's an impossible job. I mean, let's just 
you've written as much recently. It's right. impossible, Jeff. Well, particularly when those guys are going to do what they're going to do, and you ain't going to stop yeah. them. And you sit there looking like a dead, you know, a, a deer in the headlights. And but if people, you're when your wife yells about this is why people hate politics. That's exactly why they don't want rehearsal. They want honest discussion of real things that matter in their lives. Which now, has been Trump's strength, right? That whether you agreed with him or not, you, you sense that in the moment he believes what he's saying. Right. But you don't sense that he knows what he's talking about. Right. That's the problem. Right. That he, you know, Hillary, when you ask her about Social Security policy, there's no doubt in your mind that she knows at least the basics of Social Security Less confident you don't that she get that believes the thing she's saying. Right, all right. It, it may be calculated or whatever, but she's not at sea. What, but, I, I was laughing so much last night watching the debate. I thought Pence did a great job on some factual things that Trump would have utterly been unable to answer, mm-hmm. you know, because he just doesn't live it. He does. It, it's not what he's about. So there's got to be a happy medium, it well, seems we to don't me, between get, the overprepared and underprepared. Well, to bring this conversation full circle, we don't get the candor we, we desire, we say we want, because some candidate, everyone, every candidate's afraid they're going to end up saying something that's not quite PC or is, is, is wrong in some way. It's a gaffe, and they retrench back to some place before they were when the, the debate even began. And it's that penalty phase of this campaign, the price you pay for being candid, for saying something that's not quite, you know, widely accepted as true, and the penalty you pay for that, that is why we don't get the yeah, conversations I, we I, want. I, I talk about full circle. I want to talk a little bit about Sunday, because it is the second debate uh, of three uh, among uh, between the presidential candidates, and uh, get some sense of what we expect from this town hall meeting, but also w- with the idea that Maybe the debates are turning points, but they're very flawed. They're very flawed measures of candidates. Do you think, Scott, can you talk about that a little bit, that this is a, you know, they're so important, and yet they, they add so little to our understanding of either candidate? Yeah, but in terms of, I, I agree that, and disagree, I guess. Yeah. In terms of single particular moments in the campaign, I find them the most valuable. You're most likely to get the person at some level of candor just because they, they have to interact with somebody and they can't go off a teleprompter. And, and I, th- it'll be very interesting. You know, Trump sort of made an issue of not preparing to an incredible degree for the first debate. All signals are now that he is taking this much more seriously. Um, <clears throat> the, the format's different. They'll be fielding questions from people in this ta- town hall audience, and, and that'll be, be trickier, I think. But um, it'll be interesting to see if he can rebound. And if I, I think there's a lot of pressure on him at this debate to do be- much better, right? Yeah. yeah but I how agree. does he rebound, Steve? I mean, what, what, how, when we walk away Sunday night, we will say he came back because he did what? What he spoke more directly to the issues. He showed a little uh, uh, compassion. He didn't interrupt Hillary Clinton as often as he did the first debate. It seems to me the the fixes that Donald Trump has to make. And I said this last week. He it's fairly fixable. I mean, he can do three or four things that are fairly simple fixes and really amp up his game. I think to a remarkable degree. You don't you won't have the Alex Baldwin interpretation the following Sunday of no, wrong, wrong, <laughs> you know, you, that you can change that pretty quickly. So it seems to me the upside potential for Donald Trump is pretty good. Where Hillary goes in this camp, uh, this debate, 
I don't know how she really improves her game or changes where she was the first time. So you sort of expect sort of a, she'll keep doing what she was doing because it was successful the first time. So you see her being sort of the same Hillary in, in debate number two. I think Trump's got a lot of upside. Yeah, I think um, if, if I were in his office today and he asked for my advice, I, I, I would suggest that he could do himself enormous good if he just came out Sunday and said, you know, I've said some things I regret and I'm sorry. Now, he did that one time, sort of offhandedly. I think that gets lost. If he just apologized, mm -hmm. the, the American people are dying for him to show some humility yes. in some of the things he said about yes. Miss Universe and the other things that have gone on. And he could wipe the slate clean, in my view, if he just came out and showed a little bit of that humility. Now, whether that's in his DNA at any level is not clear. And if it isn't, then you get the interruptions. You get the, no, this isn't right. So, you know, if he, if he showed some of that, particularly in a town hall setting, I think he could do himself a world of good. Absent that, uh, I think it just locks in everybody's views one way or the right. other. Right. Clinton is very skilled in these uh, situations. Uh, we don't expect her to do something that's you know completely out of character or a gaffe. I mean, she's she's very cautious in that way. So uh, you know, I think uh, this. I, I agree with you guys. The stakes are very high, and I think he could solve a lot of problems for himself if he just showed some self awareness. Yeah. And he just doesn't seem to have done that to, to, to yeah, it. It's hard, though, because it, it'd have to be a really genuine thing. And so, it's, yes, it's, it's, yes, it, oh, yes. And when he talked, uh, I, f I forget what the event was. It was feels like it was a month or so ago. We said, or I've, said I, I've said some things I regret. I mean, that does leave an opening for her. So, because she, she can come back and say specifically, well, do you regret the, right. the Obama gets a birth certificate right, thing? Right. Do you regret challenging? the mm -hmm. authenticity of it when it was produced that sort of that, that if she get went into specifics on that then we're back down the rabbit hole on right. Alicia Machado or anything or the cons or whatever else you want to talk which is about what, which is what I think Tim Kaine for all the criticism he's getting today really exposed last night that when you start going down the list Trump has said so many indefensible things that you're right he's in a bit of a trap but the alternative is to stand behind them and then he becomes the caricature yeah. And he's stuck at forty percent. I mean, it, so well, let's, let's let's be let's be straight about this election, though. Despite all these gas that we're talking about here, this race is still incredibly competitive. I mean, Trump is within shooting distance in any number of swing states. Still, two three points as you look at the real clear politics uh, compendium of averages. There, he's within you know, just a few points in a whole bunch of states. Leading in Ohio, you know, leading in Iowa, could still win Florida. You begin to pick off those states and look out Hillary Clinton. So, you know, we still are sitting here with this incredulous sense that despite all of these errors and gas and incredibly politically uh, impolitic things that he has said uh, over over the months here, that he is still very much in this race. I, and let me just to wrap this up and push back from the other side because I think you're exactly right, but. She has led in virtually every poll yeah, you're for right. a year. No question. You know, Democrats have won the popular vote in this country every election cycle for president since 1988, with the exception of 2004, when George, uh, George W. Bush beat John Kerry. Every other election since then, they won the popular vote. So, and 2004 is a little iffy because if 2000 had turned out differently, who knows? 
She's basically where Obama was at this yes, time yes. four years ago. So, so you're right. It's amazing that he's still alive. But it, we should but not, he is alive. He is. But we should not discount that she remains the favorite. No, that she, no question. Without you know, going into Sunday, we're, we're, we're absent a major mistake, she remains more likely than he is to be the next president. As we record this, we are four weeks and six days from Election Day, and, and he still has a shot. That is the bottom line. All right, let's move on for our last 10 minutes or so and talk about two Senate, uh, two races in Missouri, the Senate race and the governor's race. I was down in Branson Friday for what may turn out to be the only debates involving uh, Jason Kander and, and uh, Roy Blunt, and then on the governor's side, Eric Greitens and uh, uh, Chris Coster. Um, let's talk about the Senate race first because there are rumblings that this thing is really – really tightening up and that maybe it's a one or two point race. Scott, do you get a sense of that? I mean, we've heard rumors of that. Apparently Washington is thinking that. Um, and it, it's pretty clear to me anyway that Blunt is worried about something because his ads are very aggressive now about about Jason Kander. Yeah, I think uh, you're right to look at the ads of one side to, to measure the the uh, how much they fear the other side. And the ads have gotten pretty aggressive. Um, you know, it it's going to be interesting. Candor wants you to think that he's the outsider and Trump and uh, Trump blunts the insider. And there's certainly an argument for that. You could also look at Candor is just where Roy Blunt was 20 years ago, a guy who, um, you know, is secretary of state looking for higher office. And it, it, it's going to be interesting that the, the, the money's coming in from both sides, which reflects it as serious. Um, they're both pretty strong candidates. You know, they're, they're smart good on the stump. They're smart. They know what they're doing. Um, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, the, the, other, the other indicator that this thing is close is, was the debate at Branson because you, you could see both candidates sort of circling each other but not really taking one mm -hmm. another on directly or, or highly aggressively in part because I think they wanted to avoid the gaffe, you know, the mistake, the the statement that gets pulled out and used by everybody. Particularly in something like that, because it's it's not as if anybody or very few actual humans are watching that debate. Correct. What they're looking at is Dave Helling and the Post-Dispatch. Correct. Else, and whether there's, what's the headline coming out? Right, and what can we then exploit for the next week or so? And in, the, in that debate, it was pretty clear that both candidates felt like, let's take our foot off the gas a little bit because mm -hmm. we're worried about making the mistake that makes the headline. You, you know, you and I, David, sat down with a, a very prominent Democratic operative uh, in this state the other day, and he was making the point that, hey, if, if Trump... Uh, gets uh, pulls a lead of 9, 10, 11 points over Clinton in Missouri, that all bets are off, you know, in terms of the governor's race and the ability of the Democrat to win. And you have to begin to wonder about Jason Kander in the Senate race as well. I think that's the wild card factor here that's being overlooked a little bit, uh, just how strong Donald Trump is in Missouri. Can Democrats overcome you know, a, a lead, a presidential lead of that magnitude in a state that's tilting right uh, by the year, I think that gets really iffy for those guys. So keep your eye on what the polls say about Trump's lead over Clinton in Missouri. One of the things we've talked about at length is this idea that uh, Republicans are going to have a tough time voting uh, against Trump, not voting in that race or voting for Hillary Clinton, and then going to the Senate line and, in essence, voting for Kander as well, mm -hmm. and, and sort of a reverse coattails where, where Republicans will say, look, I'm not comfortable with Trump, but by God, I'm not sending 
a, a uh, Democrat, Democrat to the, the Senate. Senate. But well, here's what's it, harder. But, you know, the, the candor people say, well, we might get some of the same voters as Trump because they're looking for an outsider. Well, I have I don't a hard buy that time picturing all. the person who votes for both candidates. But I did. This Trump. did occur to me on the way home that one of the uh, one of the dynamics on the other side might be that a lot of Trump's support comes from labor, blue collar guys mm-hmm. who are you know guns and mm-hmm. that type of thing, who might be able to vote for Trump, but then would say, "By God, I'm not voting for a Republican for the Senate too." You know, Jason Kander's on the you know in the right mm-hmm. place on trade. He's in the right place on wages. He's done all the things that mm-hmm. we've talked about. So it could be that becomes well, a wash he's a little, a little bit, bit you know? more free trade than candor than mm. than the traditional Democrat. Well, I th- you know I went to an event where eight or he's nine against labor TPP. guys. Yeah, candor, right? Yeah. So so that's my point that that the Democrats. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you Democrats are hate free trade, and so he's with them on that. You know, again, minimum wage. Uh, Obamacare, those kinds of things, I think. So you get the yeah, sense that right, people right. who might mm-hmm. vote for Trump, Democrats, blue-collar Democrats, were a lot, you know, Reagan Democrats, might come to the second line and say, no, I'm, I'm voting for Jason Kander, which would explain why, mm-hmm. at least partially why, uh, you know, the Senate race may be one or two points when the presidential in Missouri may be eight or nine points. Yeah, which would be amazing, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so what, what, where do we think that race is? You think, Steve, that it's I, a I, I still think it's a, Roy, race? it's a Roy Blunt uh, race by two, three, four points. I, I get, I just what I think. Yeah, okay. Let's move to the governor's race. Very different dynamic there. Um, uh, Eric Greitens in the debate came out blazing off the top, in every single answer he yeah. gave, he used the words Chris Coster. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Chris Coster is an insider and, 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 and just really lacerated and corruption and evil and all those things, which is a sign that you're behind. Yep. I mean, you've really got to throw the bomb. I, I thought Eric, Did it work? I mean, do we no. get no- I, I thought Eric Greitens looked really desperate in that debate, and it, it, it permeated almost every answer he gave, that sense of, I've got to get back in this campaign. I believe the debate occurred just within a, <clears throat> a day or two after that Remington poll came out in Missouri that showed Chris Coster up by what, Six, fi- I think it was 16 15, points. 16 points, right. which is a number I, sh- I should quickly add. I don't buy for a moment that a Democratic candidate for governor in, you know, trending red Missouri could be uh, leading by that many points. But having said that, you're absolutely right. Eric Greitens gave every appearance that he's way behind in this race by the way he approached uh, approached the, uh, the debate. Now, having said that, we, we are learning here this week that, that the Republicans, Republican uh, Governors Association, prepared to come in now in the final weeks of this campaign and, and, and dump as many as $9 million into Eric Wrighton's campaign. They believe this is a, a state that they can pick up in their column. It's still a competitive uh, race. That's a lot of money, and, and that, that kind of negative barrage against Coster could begin to turn those numbers pretty quickly. I still think it's Chris Coster's race, but that, that's serious money. I was amazed that uh, Eric Greitens not only came out so aggressively in the debate, but he did so without – I think one of the key <clears throat> things in politics is to lay a sort of a predicate for your argument. And, and Greitens, for whatever reason, has been particularly – uh, difficult to to find in the media. He doesn't give interviews. He doesn't yes, do things. So you, you know, he, he's like this presence, and you see his face, but you don't see him really in the public. You don't get the sense that he's really connecting with people. And then comes out blazing against Chris Coster. 
I, I, it's a real gamble. I mean, I, I just don't get the sense that that he that there's a basis for making these you know accusations against a guy, by the way, who's been pretty well known in the state for a long time. You know, Republicans in Missouri, David, as you well know, have have a serious problem. You get a sense in this campaign, particularly once again, second uh, open uh, race for governor of Missouri that we've seen that you that Republicans come out of the primary and they've had a difficult, contentious election to, just to win the nomination. Right. Then they've got to pivot immediately against a Democrat who's well-rested, well-funded, raring to go. You know, uh, Greitens comes out of the primary. The next week he's talking to the Farm Bureau, loses that endorsement, loses a series of conservative-leaning uh, endorsements from, from groups in Missouri. You get a sense he never really got his footing after the primary, and it still shows today. Right, and he had no real theory other than I'm Eric Greitens. That's right. And not, you know, you, you talk about an issueless campaign. It's yes. very much personality. But it's sort, it's sort of the paradox of being the dominant political party in the state. You beat each other up in the primary. And, you know, in Kansas, it works out all right because you've got such a, an overwhelming Republican edge. But Missouri, it's still it's a Republican edge, but it's a marginal one. Right. So time and again, they beat each other the primary, and then they, they come in. And this time they come in against a guy who's very moderate, used to be a Republic, nominal Republican. So, I, I, you know, to, to my mind, it, 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 it turns on, well, voters look at it as simply Republican versus Democrat, or they look at the two guys, yeah. one who they sort of know and one who they don't really yeah. know. I think you're onto something very important, though, about how I often am. Right. Republicans in this state, Missouri, and Kansas, too, to a degree, uh, end up fighting one another all Mm -hmm. the time, in part because they're the majority party. And, you know, minority, and I think the Democrats, who, by the way, are much more sort of attuned to government, typically, understand that as the minority party, you you need to do everything right, which means no primary. Pick right. a great candidate, find lots of money, you know, save your your ammunition until the end. And I think we've seen that from Coster, and I think we've seen that from Jason Kander. There was no real primary for that Senate race. Right. Once he got in, everyone got out. Same you didn't thing see it with, for Roy Blunt either. One reason right. you begin to think about why he's been so successful, he's been able to, to quell that dissension within his own but party. But the governor, we haven't been. I mean, the, Missouri has a great habit of, right. of Republicans just yes. beating the living crap out of each other in governor races, and this one was no ex- exception. Let's go through the recent history. 2008, very tough primary for the Republican nomination for governor, you know, uh, uh, Kenny Halsoff loses. Move to 2012, very difficult, contentious race for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate. Uh, toy, uh, tr- uh, Aiken loses, Todd Aiken loses. Then you come forward to this this campaign here, and the betting line today would be that Eric Greitens loses after a very difficult well, I mean, go back farther. 1992, I wrote this story when, when Roy oh Blunt and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Bill Webster Bailey and, and Wendell Bailey Webster. beat the living crap out of yeah. me. It's still a legendary race. Roy Blunt is, still won't talk about it. I mean, yeah. that's how nasty it was. And I think that's just a reflection of majority parties arguing with each other all the time because they have that luxury. Yes. Uh, you know, minority parties understand, boy, you better get all your ducks in a row or, or, or you're going to lose every single time. Um, and, but, and there's also just a real split among Republicans about approach to government. And, you, you know, it's a very... You know, Roy Blunt's approach is not the same as Eric Greitens, I must say. I mean, both of them have a, a very different view of what government is about. And, in fact, one of the funny things, funniest things from the debate was the first, the first debate between the governor, among the governor candidates, 
Uh, Eric Greitens kept saying career politician, career politician, always been an office insider. Right. And then here comes Roy Blunt, <laughs> who's been yeah. Secretary of State, right. member of the House, U.S. Senate, been around politics forever. And, you know, and here's Jason Cantor sort of saying, I'm the outsider, I'm the, I'm the new independent voice for Missouri. That's one of the problems that Eric Reitens has had is he's been so critical of his own party for turning Jefferson City into a corrupt cesspool of insider dealings. And, you know, here he's asking for their support now. It ain't working for yeah. him. Let's try one other question and we'll call it a day. One of the things I really noticed down in the Springfield-Branson area, which is we all know is pretty, the most conservative part of Missouri probably, I mean maybe the Ozarks and Boot Hill are, are equally conservative, but certainly Springfield, Joplin, Branson is where a lot of Republican votes come from. I was struck by the absence of yard signs. It didn't seem like there really? you You could no. drive down there, you'd think you'd see Trump everywhere and Greitens, virtually none of it. I think this is the least enthusiastic electorate I've seen <laughs> maybe in 20 years. And I think it starts at the top, but you just go down the list, you don't get the sense that voters are overwhelmingly excited about any of their choices really in the major races. Does that change in the last month? Do are, am, are, is it, It's not happening because we're so far out, or, or is it really, do we really think people are not just not happy with their with their so no, I think it's a, the latter people are not happy it's Hillary Clinton's you know Achilles heel here she's got to find a way to inject some enthusiasm into her base here in the final weeks and she's doing that with Barack and Michelle Obama which you have a sense that was the game plan from day one to bring them in at the end to get the base sort of ramped up again but oh absolutely I I, I think we're looking I mean at, even in Kansas City do we see lots of signs no. do we see rallies do we see any enthusiasm energy at all I I just don't see it no I I agree with you I, I would challenge you on your your yardstick I don't the the bumper sticker and the yard sign simply aren't what they where people put their money into anymore. Right, it's right, it's more it. valuable to have somebody tweeting for you than driving around with a, with a bumper sticker. But I, I mean, everybody I talk to, they're you know they're disgusted. Seems like such a grind. Yeah, there, there's no enthusiasm. Can of, that of any change sort. in the last month, and how? I don't, I don't see it. I, see it. I mean, maybe something will happen, but I. Yeah. I mean, there's no way. I mean, not I with the numbers, the unfavorable numbers these two presidential candidates have. Absolutely not. And and that campaign still continues to block out the sun here. I mean, good luck, Eric Greitens, trying to break through the right. Trump phenomenon. Even you know? though neither candidate is really in Missouri, you still don't get the sense. That well, look at 2008 at 31st and, and Gillum in Kansas City. Barack Obama had his campaign headquarters. That thing was burning 24 right. 7. Right. People showing up, enthusiasm signs. Well, right. I mean, you remember. Know, Missouri was in play. Missouri was in play. Yeah, of but I rem remember the, the rally he held on the Liberty Memorial oh gosh, about a week out, and there were, you know, the estimates were different, but clearly 50,000, 60,000 people were there. I don't think you could get 50,000 people to show up for any political event in Missouri at any time for any reason yeah. ever. Right. Unless and, you threw a Royals game yeah, in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, right, right, or a Chiefs game maybe. And you don't get the sense that there's just any enthusiasm right. for it at all, which is why maybe it's become more about gaffes than anything mm. because people are watching it as entertainment. See how Dave brought it back there to oh, where we started. Really he's so that's, cool. That's, that's and speaking of gaffes, you have listened to a gaff-filled <laughs> episode filled of episode, Deep Background yeah. here at the Kansas City Star. My thanks to Scott Cannon of the Star yeah. for being with us and Steve Kraske as always from 
KCUR is up to date and the star. Great to have you with us. Thanks, David. Next week, we'll be able to sit down and talk about the second debate um, in St. Louis, the town hall debate. And uh, we'll try and keep our attention focused on these other races as well. And um, we'll see what happens as uh, we get closer to Election Day. Again, thanks for being with us. Subscribe. Send us your uh, your criticisms, your praise, anything we can get at this point. We'll be happy to, uh, to listen to. I'm Dave Helling with The Star. You have been on Deep Background.